Did you ever read the book in which C.S. Lewis criticized Trump Trumpery? Trumpery at the holiday season? He said, they buy gift for one another such things as no man ever bought for himself. But C.S. Lewis did love the Advent season or Christmas season, and so did Professor J.R.R. Tolkien. He celebrated the season so hard that he actually ghost wrote letters from Father Christmas from the North Pole for his own children. What can we learn about critiquing yet celebrating Christmas from these two legends? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the festive podcast from lorehaven.com, in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm Steve Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And you're having pints with Zach. That's myself, Zachary Russell. And hopefully it's a non-alcoholic pint because I'm Baptist, but this is episode 191. How did Lewis and Tolkien celebrate and critique Christmas? We're going to be joined by a very special guest today, David Bates from Pints with Jack. Pints with Jack is the podcast that invented the C.S. Lewis reading day. Zach and I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago on our episode. That's kind of a prequel to this one. We focused a lot more on C.S. Lewis's entire body of work, his essays, his nonfiction, and his fantasy in that episode. Go back and listen if you have a hankering to. This time, though, we're focusing much more on Tolkien and Lewis and Christmas. Both of them had a surprising amount to say about the holiday season. And it wasn't just Father Christmas in Narnia. I think most of us would think about that when we think about C.S. Lewis and Christmas. What did he think about that? We actually do have an episode uh, regarding uh, Lewis's take on Father Christmas and uh, gifts from Father Christmas that are useful items, useful for a purpose. They are, Father Christmas says, tools, not toys. You can find all those links in the previous episodes in our show notes. Let's go real quick, though, to our first sponsor, Enclave Publishing, once again, a champion of great Christian fantastical stories with a new release called Lumen by author J.J. Fisher, a fantasy that's book two of the Nightingale trilogy. What if erasing the past costs more than you are willing to pay? Having narrowly escaped their enemies, Stephanie, Dorian, and Cass continue their search for the elusive Silvertongue, the only one with knowledge of the reliquary's whereabouts. But time is running out for Stephanie, and with Dorian accused of high treason, the quest takes on a new urgency. As secrets from each of their pasts drive a wedge between them, Stephanie invests all her hopes in finding her homeland at Lethe, where her family may yet be alive. But nothing about Lethe is as she expects, and disappointment, betrayal, and danger await her at every turn. Enclave Escape presents Lumen, the Nightingale Trilogy Book 2 by J.J. Fisher. It went on sale December 5th, wherever great books are sold, and it's also available as an audiobook on CD from Amazon. You can also pick that up in digital format from Audible, Spotify, and through libraries everywhere. Get all the links in our show notes for this episode, 191, or for this and all the other sponsors you'll hear about, go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach David's coming in shortly, but let's stop at our concession stand. I think we can grab a bit early from those stockings hung by the chimney with care. I mentioned some of our previous episodes in our Christmas Magic series, which we start again every December for this podcast. For example, uh, if you have any thoughts about, oh, Christmas is kind of secular, you know, Lewis really hit on something with this whole Xmas thing, and y'all not X out the name of Christ, and still got some lingering questions about that. Well, uh, go to episode 200. I don't know, because we haven't recorded it yet. Uh, maybe we'll do that one next year, and you'll be able to find that if you're listening a year later from 2023 by just going to the uh, Christmas Magic series title. 
And I already mentioned our episode about Santa, whether or not he should be over or under or beside or wherever the Christ child at the holiday season. You can go to our episode 44 if you want to hear about that. Uh, we'll just include that link in our show notes for the Christmas magic series. And we also have that link for our previous episode about uh, Lewis's body of work. I'd also written, I think just last year, Zach, uh, an article called C.S. Lewis despised Xmas cards and cosplays but loved serious celebration. And so a lot of this discussion uh, for me will be informed by that article. You can find that in the show notes too. From there, I think we're going to let in our guest, David Bates with the Pints with Jack podcast. Hello, how are you boys doing? Pretty good. Uh, you just came through a wardrobe there, uh, David, but uh, um, you left the door open uh, through the wardrobe. Why is that? Because it is a very foolish thing to do to to shut oneself up inside a wardrobe, as C.S. Lewis tells us. I think about four times in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Very sage words, uh, Lewis, uh, looking out for his young readers, uh, urging them do not try this at home, even if there's a magical land in the wardrobe. David Bates is an English software engineer, and he moved to the United States in his late twenties, living in Washington D.C., Seattle, and San Diego before getting married during COVID and moving with his life to La Crosse, Wisconsin, where they have two children. David runs the weekly podcast Pints with Jack, where he discusses the works of C.S. Lewis, the Christian apologist and author of the Chronicles of Narnia. David, I mentioned earlier that you all just started this new thing called C.S. Lewis Reading Day, because why should uh, J.R.R. Tolkien have all of the meme-worthy occasions? Uh, I was on a live stream with a bunch of you guys with a bunch of uh, affiliated podcasts. Um, Give us a quick rundown before we start the discussion how the first uh, annual C.S. Lewis Reading Day went. It went really, really well. It really came from the fact that, you know, I'm around Tolkien nerds all the time, and they have multiple days on which to celebrate the professor. And I just figured, you know, enough was enough. It was time for C.S. Lewis to get his own day. And so I just contacted a bunch of Lewis and Inklings related podcasters and said, we're starting a day. When should it be? And everybody voted for his birthday. So we could wish him happy birthday each year. And uh, yeah, and then people put out special episodes. There were some crossover episodes between different podcasters. Articles were written, videos were recorded. And as you say, it just culminated in a set of live streams. We had one on the East Coast time, seven to eight, and one on the West Coast time, seven to eight. And it was really just an opportunity to get everyone together, have people meet other people in the uh, Lewis-related world, and, um, and start planning for next year. Well, Lewis brings together all kinds of Christians and other fans. Uh, there's a lot of ecumenical energy going on. I think some of the uh, lads showing up for the live stream were actually the sorts who'd have collars. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a guy in front of my <laughs> church who had a collar in my life, but Lewis probably did because uh, an Anglican and Tolkien, of course, was Catholic. Uh, Zach and I are not Catholic, but you are. So we all get to join in, at least to, for today, to talk about Lewis and Tolkien and their responses to the holidays. Uh, some of that discussion we already started before we started recording. But for example, one little difference between Christian traditions, David, is that a lot of uh, Christians from particular denominations would prefer we not say Christmas season. Uh, what else would they call this time of year leading up to Christmas Day? Well, this is technically Advent because it is uh, the advent of Christ at Christmas. It is, is a period of preparation. And particularly in, say, the Eastern Church, it's also a time of um, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, just like just like Lent, uh, it, which prepares for Easter. And so Advent is a, is a little version. You're not quite cracking open the uh, eggnog just yet. 
Well, I'm cracking up the eggnog because there's nothing in the Bible that says I can't, but <laughs> is it going to be warm or cold though? Now that's the sort of thing you ought to split a church over. I love the word Advent, by the way, because it's the root of the word adventure. And just maybe it's because of uh, lighting an Advent wreath with my family uh, when I was a child, but there's a uh, kind of a mystique about it. The the candles, like I, I kind of understand why people like the more liturgical side of thing because of building in reenacting this sense of anticipation kind of casting your imagination your heart your mind back to that time before christ arrived for the first time and trying to instill in yourself that that longing uh, even though he's already here and we know that uh it's like imagining what it would have been like before he died before you start celebrating the resurrection going through those thought patterns can be very helpful uh in terms of what we would call sanctification Okay, now, so wait a second. It, 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 from your background, you don't like when people say happy holidays because what they should say is happy Advent. Exactly. I, I think yeah. it's a line in 30 Rock where, where they, they, they have receive a card and it says happy holidays and they turn it over. Is what pagans say. <laughs> happy Christmas. <laughs> this is correct. Uh, the war on Christmas, though, has, <laughs> has been won, but, but that's another episode. David, Zach, let's start our first chapter for this one about C.S. Lewis and how he despised Xmas cards and what I would say cosplay. That's not a Lewis word. I think the Japanese made it up. Uh, but the sort of trumpery that Lewis is talking about uh, could be translated as that. I mentioned earlier, a lot of folks might think mainly of Lewis's positive portrayal of Father Christmas in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't read it in a while, faithful listener, uh, Father Christmas crashes the mythological world. Uh, which is a hodgepodge, which Tolkien did not like. Yeah, I didn't like it either, Stephen. Okay, I know. The, the, this is a late concession, confession stand. I, oh. I, I really, the first time, I didn't like it. I like it now. It's for the kids. Okay, okay, you, okay, you like it now. Okay, I like it so now. we've matured as a believer. Okay, excellent. <laughs> now, the thing is, if you put goofy Santa Claus in there, you know, with, with, with Rudolph and, well, for that matter, a, a bumbling North Polar Bear, I don't think it would fit. Uh, but I think the movie, for all its faults, captured well uh, the uh, aesthetic of the book where Father Christmas shows up and he's like some sort of ancient entity from the Northlands. And uh, it's so cool. And he is so earnest and yet jolly at the same time. So Lewis, yeah. he, yes, exactly. And Lewis liked Father Christmas. It's very clear. He liked the idea of him, at least the serious idea of him. But uh, and David, actually, I think I mentioned this on the live stream when we're talking about our favorite Lewis essays. Uh, Lewis also satirized the holiday in one essay that a lot of folks don't know too much about. It's called uh, Xmas and Christmas. I got it here in my essay collection here. Where did this go? Ah, page 301 in my God in the Dock collection. I'm going to try to read some select excerpts here. Unless, David, you happen to have that in front of you and would want to read that, because you probably have the better reading voice here. <laughs> I certainly do have some extracts. Did you, uh, did, you, did you want to do the What Christmas Means to Me first, which is his more didactic, direct approach of what he doesn't like, and then the Xmas and Christmas is the lost chapter from Herodotus, where he fictionalizes the whole thing. Let's let's do the uh, let's do the the hot take first. <laughs> Xmas and Christmas with Neoturbians and all of that. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. This this is wonderful. I I only read this relatively recently. Um, so as you say, it's called Xmas and Christmas: A Lost Chapter from Herodotus. And uh, for those of you that didn't go to a classical Christian school, Herodotus was a Greek historian, and uh, Lewis is basically writing a fictionalized lost work. 
where he's putting in all of his arguments about Christmas. And he describes a certain island in Europe and the celebrations that they have at the end of the year. And he calls the island Neoturb, which it took me a moment or two to work out what he was doing, but that means Britain backwards. It's embarrassing how long it took for me to catch on to that silly little reversal of the letters <laughs> well it, you guys are american so you, you could call it acker akarima akarima there you go <laughs> but, the ASU. Uh, but here's, here's a few extracts to give people an idea of what he's saying and beyond there lies in the ocean turned towards the west and north the island of neoturb they have a great festival which they call xmas and here in the text he calls it e-x-m-a-s Every citizen is obliged to send to each of his friends and relations a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with the crowd of those buying them, so there is great labor and weariness. But having as many as they suppose to be sufficient, they return to their houses. When they find cards from any whom they have sent cards, they throw them away and give thanks to the gods that this labor is at least for another year over. But when they find cards from any whom they have not sent, then they beat their breasts and wail and utter curses against the sender, and having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put on their boots again and go out into the fog and rain and buy a card for him also. And then he says, when the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens, being exhausted with the rush, lie in bed till noon. But in the evening, they eat five times as much supper as the others, five times as much supper as on other days, and crowning themselves with paper crowns, become intoxicated. And then he talks about how they're really hung over the next day. But he then contrasts this festival of Xmas with another festival called Christmas, spelt C-R-I-S-S-M-A-S. This is what Herodotus writes. The few among the Neoturbians have also a festival, separate and to themselves, called Christmas, which is on the same day as Xmas. And those who keep Christmas, doing the opposite to the majority of the Neoturbians, rise early on that day with shining faces and go before sunrise to certain temples where they partake of a sacred feast. And in most of the temples, they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knees and certain animals and shepherds adoring the child. The reason of these images is given in a certain sacred story, which I know, but will not repeat. Scathing. That is fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely scathing. Even more so, I suppose, if you were in England at the time, as some of those images are lost on Americans, uh, the paper crowns, like not a whole lot of us are, are getting drunk and passed out overnight. But uh, David, you said you caught up to this essay fairly late, which is awesome, by the way. There's so much Lewis to discover, even mm -hmm. little um, hot takes like this one that he left uh, lying about the kilns or someplace like what was your thought then david when you read this uh, just a kind of a different uh, a little more satirical side of lewis a little closer to the screw tape letters yeah i, I roared like a drain i felt very vindicated when i read this because uh, i'm sure we'll we'll talk about our own experiences of christmas but uh, i i am i'm not your ally mcbeal isn't christmas a wonderful time of year sort of person uh my my views of it have evolved over over my life, but uh, the whole idea of creating all of this extra work for yourself and uh, actually being miserable in the very process of it, I think is is crazy. And that's that's Lewis's main point um, in these essays. I mean, at, at the end of this particular one, he says that he speaks to one of the priests and he says, "Why don't you move Christmas so it doesn't fall on Xmas? So you have this big shopping rush and everybody's stressed out. And so why, why don't you just move Christmas?" And the, the priest replies, it is not lawful, O stranger, for us to change the date of Christmas. 
but would that Zeus would put it into the minds of the Neoturbians to keep Xmas at some other time or not keep it at all. For Xmas and the Christmas rush distract the minds even of the few from sacred things. And we indeed are glad that men should make merry at Christmas. But in Xmas, there is no merriment left. This is one of the things that Lewis is re really rails against. It's like, you guys aren't even enjoying this. Stop it. Well, that's a great point, David, about the fact that they aren't even enjoying all of this uh, slavish devotion to sending cards if someone sent you one first. And honestly, I have kind of gotten off that train, but I still feel a little guilty about it uh, with uh, someone in this very room, actually, a late-breaking concession. I think Zach and his family send us a Christmas card every year, but I have never sent one back after beating my breast and trudging back out into the slush or, or otherwise. It's just not something that I've ever had the time to do. But I think the best way to enjoy that is just, hey, if if you all have that platform, that time, uh, if you have a bigger family to take an awesome family photo with, then by all means, send the card. Uh, and then the other person will send you a, a nice uh, text saying thank you in lowercase <laughs> letters. That's the better way to do it then, where there's none of these uh, um, slavish expectations built in. Yeah. And I'm guessing in that case, Lewis may have appreciated it more or at least uh, hated it less. But I can just understand then how much more burdened he would have felt uh, this person for whom writing and teaching and languages and books is a full time job being told, hey, because reasons, we got to make you write even more stuff. And it's going to be completely <laughs> sentimental. Like Lewis actually describes in here, you know, the types of images that are on top of the card. What does he say? The pictures represent birds sitting on branches or trees with a dark green prickly leaf, or else men in such garments as the Neoturbians believe that their ancestors wore 200 years ago, riding in coaches such as their ancestors used, or houses with snow on their roofs. And the Neoturbians are unwilling to say what these pictures have to do with the festival, guarding, as I suppose, some sacred mystery. I actually went back and I looked at some of those public domain Christmas cards. You know, at least they don't have the creepy frogs riding on Victorian bicycles or something. I guess they would have gotten <laughs> through that phase by the time Lewis was writing about this. But some of them are really saccharine. And of course, mm. you know, that kind of sickly sweetness is associated with Xmas for quite some time as part of the secularism. So I've kind of learned not to hate it. But David, I'm guessing I'm probably a little bit more on the side of yay Christmas than you are. Um, Zach, do you fall like neatly in between as the moderate or what's your position? Well, I, I definitely resonate with this essay because I, my mind immediately goes to a Simpsons episode. This is from season nine. It's called Trash of the Titans. And it starts off with a board meeting of this local department store called Cosington's. And they're saying, you know, there's no good holidays in the summer. There's nothing at all in August. We need to come up with something. And someone says, well, how about we call it Love Day? They're like, okay, that's that's a good start, but let's think of something you know that sounds less stupid. And then the next scene, it's everyone going happy love day, and they're opening cards and opening presents, and there's just tons of wrapping paper and you know all this junk they're throwing away, and then it creates a, a trash crisis. And fast forward, Homer becomes the sanitation manager for the city, and it's just an amazing episode. But I completely resonate with that, and you know, and especially with when our, our kids were much younger, it's like you go through this phase where they're more interested in the wrapping paper mm. than even the, uh, the presents. And you're like, wait, which one am I throwing away? Because they don't really seem to care about this gift. And man, there, there's, um, there's a lot that I feel upset about in this season because of how much it gets away from not just Christmas, but Advent, as we were saying. But when it comes to this year, it, it's a little different with us with, we're still in this 
season of mourning. And so we're like, you know what, we'll put up a tree, but that's about it. You know, we have all these other decorations up in boxes in our attic and we haven't even put lights up in our house. We're like, eh, oh well. And I started thinking about that. I'm like, why don't I just do that every year? Why don't I just say no to whatever it is I don't want to do and just say yes to what I do want to do and just be happy with that? Because putting up our tree was really fun. We we had a bunch of friends over to help us and that was fun explaining to them all the the history of all the ornaments and kind of the family stories. We really went deep in that. And then Naomi has gathered a few decorations here and there. And yes, we did the cards, but we, we were like writing the update for the back of the card. And we're like, okay, that's it. I don't know what else to say. Oh, well, I know that I'm going to get these amazing cards from people. I mean, Steven, you talk about our cards, but I, right. It's not it, a race. It's such a, it feels erased. like a race, right? It feels like this. Oh my gosh. Like I got a card from a family. They, it was like a Minecraft theme like all of their friend all of their family members were minecraft characters so like that is the yeah, coolest so thing ever someone to do a complete photoshop <laughs> job on your family uh, a custom artwork where everyone's superheroes uh fighting uh, the sith yeah. lords or something yeah um uh, <sighs> david how does the bates household send out ornate christmas cards with pictures of what you suppose your ancestors used to wear <laughs> <laughs> no no not really I, and us is a is the family situation has helped get us away from all of that because my wife is one of seven. All of her siblings are married. We're all producing children and we all live really close to each other. So there's so many of us. It is absolutely pointless for us all to go to get on that rat race of sending out a perfunctory card. And so we get to do things that are just much more enjoyable rather than doing all of that. We get together and you know, have fun and drink and eat food. And, uh, and we don't have to, jump through those sorts sort of hoops and for my family back home you know they're getting whatever i can send them through amazon because i'm not spending uh, that money on shipping because it'll be about four times the value of whatever present i send them i think that a lot of those traditions uh shift based on the technology and the culture that's available to us like for example i guess the point originally of christmas cards is stay in touch with people that's all you had back then was the post mm. well now rightly or wrongly we do have text messaging and you can send someone a voice clip. And like, I'm very connected with Team Lorehaven on our Slack board, uh, very connected with family members over Facebook Messenger and text messages. Like That sort of thing can happen naturally. And then hopefully you don't even have to pause everything during the uh, Xmas season uh, in order to connect with someone with a um, rather banal uh, Christmas card. Uh, you can do something even better with the text. And so it really is, I think, the heart that matters. And I wonder what Lewis would have thought then if he'd known that uh, later on, a few generations from now, people would have kind of let maybe the Christmas card thing not entirely die, but fade a little bit. I think there's still a little romance associated with it, uh, but people would be connected uh, for better and worse in other ways. I wonder if then maybe he may have been a little bit wistful <laughs> about the uh, Xmas cards. Maybe, just maybe, but it wasn't just the Xmas cards. It's the shopping rush and all that stuff that we still have. You know, some of the excesses of free markets and such. That can get a little bit easier, too, if you're just outsourcing everything to uh, a giant corporation <laughs> to send to people. But that also does help to simplify some things. And then, of course, having a larger family, that can make things very difficult. The best you can get, maybe, uh, even if you live all close together like that, is like a gift exchange. If you do gifts at all, maybe just show up and like the experience is the gift. There are ways that we can approach this. But if it's not fun, like Zach said, like if you're not actually wanting to do that, 
Well, then you actually fall a little closer to what the Bible says about this um, legalistic obligation to participate in holidays. Like you weren't talking about Christmas there. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans or Corinthians, he's talking about these uh, original Jewish holidays. But I think the principle does translate. If you're doing it because you're supposed to or because you're in a race with your neighbor or something, well, then you've lost the holla of the holiday. Uh, it's now an obligation. You're not doing this out of the overflow of joy and gratitude. Uh, you're doing this because you need to compete with something. And that's mm -hmm. just the sort of thing that Lewis condemned. Yeah, and a societal expectation. The, the, first, the first Christmas where my wife and I were married, we had a, a much quieter Christmas because you know, we'd, we'd just started forming our own family. We ate chicken tikka masala for Christmas because it's what <laughs> we both wanted to eat. It was delicious. Well, it's supposed to be ham and, you know, it's supposed to be whatever your family grew up with. That's the Ooh, only acceptable Christmas meal. I, turkey at Thanksgiving and then somebody brings along ham and I don't know what's up with that. But that's uh, that's going to vary from family to family. But uh, Lewis did have more positive things to say about Christmas. We don't need to give just the just the negative view here. It just But you saw there, like David, as you're reading the contrast between Christmas and Xmas, where all these secular traditions have built up, and a lot of those uh, really can kind of take or leave them. Uh, but the thing, yes, that you ought to be celebrating, I think Lewis would have put the bumper sticker on his car if he'd had one, is Jesus is the reason for the season. <laughs> and it's cliche, but it is true. I just think that there is a way to get uh, some of that incarnation celebrating energy into even some of the secular stuff we do. I mean, it is kind of goofy that we put up a, a, a tree that we've a perfectly good tree. We've chopped down and relocated indoors for it to die 35 days later, even if you water it well. And then it's even goofier to have a fake version of that tree. And then you put bubbles on it and electrical supplies. Like what, what's going on? I sometimes pause in the middle of this. I'm like, what are we doing again? Oh, wait, this is fun. It is joyous. A fun is mm -hmm. too simple a word. There is a joy to it. There is a beauty to it. Uh, something that really we ought to be carrying on uh, year round, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, we we all have those kind of goofy things that we do, and it's like we we just do them because it's fun, and we've always done it. I mean, we we have one of those little goofy traditions in our family where I collect all this newspaper because we don't normally get a newspaper, and I I tape it all over the hallway entrance to our kids' rooms, and so when they wake up, they get to crash through this giant wall of. Uh, you know, newspaper, it's, it's almost like unwrapping the living room. And that's, that's just fun, you know, cause that's, that's what I did when I was a kid. And, uh, it, it's, it's really silly, but it's, you know, it's one of those things you do because it's fun. And I do want to emphasize the fact that Lewis isn't going full old grumpy old man here. No, he's um, not Scrooge. No. no, no. In the, in the parallel essay with, with this, when he said, talks about what Christmas means to me, he distinguishes between the religious festival of Christmas, the popular holiday, which has got some complex connections to the religious festival. And he says, this one is based on merrymaking and hospitality. And he says, I very much approve of these things, mm. but he distinguishes that from the commercial racket and the obligations which come along with it. And he also writes in his letters that he doesn't send cards or presents except to children. So he, he, he's more than happy for them to have a ball at Christmas. Yeah. This was a man who inherited two, two schoolboy stepsons. You know, and that's a good point because it, it's really the commercial rush that everyone feels that angst and frustration with, and, and even in the secular world. So there was a uh, TikTok video that went viral recently where this woman is walking through Walmart and this is on black Friday. And she had this suspicion that like the prices weren't actually going down for black Friday, that this was all a ruse. Like there's been memes about this forever. 
And she actually just like pulled the little sign away and it would be like a TV or something. And it would say, you know, $400 or $399 Black Friday special. And she pulled it away. And there was the sign from one day ago that said $399. <laughs> and over and over again, she was finding this that like the prices literally were the exact same as the day before. They just added Black Friday to it and a different kind of thing on it. And and that, that went so viral because everyone is noticing that. Like, wait a minute, like, why are we being pressured by these completely deceptive, dishonest tactics? To buy things, uh, and first of all, everyone probably already got a big screen during uh, COVID because everyone got that COVID cash, you know, that they didn't <laughs> know what to do with. So I, I think people have become just more aware anyway. But that that is really what stresses people out, isn't it? And and especially with in a year with lots of inflation and other problems, everyone's thinking, you know, what what do I really need to spend my money on? What do I really want to buy? And what's what's important? Um, especially in a family with kids, like, do I need, you know, our, our kids love Paw Patrol and every Paw Patrol movie, there's like, oh, there's a new toy now. And they, they destroyed the other one. You got to buy the new one. And they even make fun of it in the show. They're like, sorry, parents. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I've missed that part. You know, it's perfectly okay if they do it. So long as they're self-aware about it, in which case the parents in the audience go, oh, okay, I'll allow it. That's perfectly yeah, fine. Right. And you could make it exactly. You should make the meme of like uh, uh, Drake with the, uh, you know, rejecting Drake, accepting. Right uh self uh, self-awareness about the capitalism is perfectly acceptable so if walmart <laughs> makes a commercial making fun of themselves for the fake black friday oh, hoax yeah. sales then it'll be perfectly fine all is forgiven walmart all is forgiven yep uh let's go then to uh chapter two in just a moment uh tolkien talking about tolkien and some of the wonderfully goofy things that he did but not without a bypass to our second sponsor a new one this time author anthony de Groot, who asks are you looking for the next Christian series you could get into? This series starts with The Culling Begins, a fictional story about 12 spirit oaks who guard Eden from the great deceiver. After standing for as long as anyone can remember, the spirit oaks begin to vanish from the world. Two opposing forces begin to clash. The Spirit Oak Chronicles will take you on a journey of faith, courage, and horror, all to save Eden. The Culling Begins by Anthony de Groot. This first installment of the Spirit Oak Chronicles is available in paperback and ebook wherever books are sold. You can see that cool cover and get the purchase links in our show notes for episode 191 or the old link uh, lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. That may be something you put under the tree at this holiday season. Great books under the tree or on the tree as the old song lyric goes. Either way, a weird thing to do, but I think Tolkien got us beat. He went even crazier and yet wonderfully. And we're going to focus on him in chapter two. How did Tolkien celebrate the season with his kids? So going slightly off brand here, it's now Pints with John Ronald Rule Tolkien. Man, I hope I said Rule right. Who in the 1920s began ghostwriting letters from Father Christmas himself for his boys. Yes, you have the hardback, David. I have the paperback. It's absolutely wonderful. Get this thing, you all. Put this under your tree. They're not even a sponsor. Uh, the the Solzans Corporation or whoever they sold it to. They're not even a sponsor of the show. But you need this book to just get another more whimsical side, and yet also the myth making side of Tolkien. Uh, starting in the 1920s, he wrote these letters. The first one's actually dated uh, 22nd December 1920 from Christmas House, North Pole, and he wrote this for his son John. Dear John, 
I heard you ask daddy what I was like and where I live. I have drawn me and my house for you. Take care of the picture. I am just off now for Oxford with my bundle of toys. Some for you. Hope I shall arrive in time. The snow is very thick at the North Pole tonight. Your loving Father Christmas. So I wonder if Tolkien knew what he'd started. Uh, because <laughs> this book now has letters going all the way to what is the final date here? 1943. That is 23 years later. Uh, almost a quarter of a century. Tolkien is ghostwriting letters from Father Christmas and occasionally his wacky klutzy sidekick, the North Polar Bear. There are elves, there are goblins, there are dragons, there are northern lights, there are technologies gone awry. Uh, there's all kinds of wonderful North Pole level nonsense going on in here, especially with the North Polar Bear, who's really very much a klutz. And I don't know why Father Christmas puts up with this guy. And these letters are personalized to Tolkien's sons, uh, starting out John, Michael, and Christopher. They started off short, and then depending, I guess, on what workload Tolkien had that year, they would get longer and more ornate. And there's doodles in the margins, and there is full-page fan art of the North Pole, and like what happens with this uh, wonderful display of the Aurora Borealis. There's puns, there's world-building, and I'm guessing, uh, David, depending on how much you've read this, like, do you think maybe the North Polar Bear was one of those fan favorite characters he took off? Because suddenly it seems you're seeing and hearing more about him than you are about Father Christmas himself. The, the boys must have really liked bears. Yes, I think there was there was definitely some market testing and the, the North Polar Bear <laughs> scored very well. Well, everyone can identify with the klutz, I suppose, except the North Polar Bear was always crashing into things and ruining the sleigh and uh, all kinds of uh, hijinks ensued there. Um, let's just say Netflix said that if y'all are looking for something to compete uh, with the rings of power, which is just taking the world by storm, as we all know, uh, definitely uh, sign over or buy the rights to uh, Tolkien's letter from Father Christmas. Uh, it's your next amazing uh, holiday standard. Zach, have you read any of these from Tolkien? Uh, does this book grace your mantle? Landing? No, but okay. I, I shall have to check this out. That, okay. That's that's a lot of fun. We um, we do something kind of similar in our family where when it comes to the the tooth fairy or the tooth fairy game, as we call it, because our, our kids are in on the game and they they know how it works. But what we do between Naomi and I and even our older two kids uh, who are now teenagers and not losing their teeth anymore, when one of the younger kids loses the teeth the four of us will get together and come up with a letter that we'll, we will put with the uh you know the dollar that replaces the tooth and uh m maybe someone one of us will write the story but someone else will actually transcribe it uh, or someone will write it left-handed uh, or in my wife's case right-handed because she is left-handed and so we'll do all these things to kind of throw off our little kids to and make them guess like who wrote it and you know who came up with the story and and sometimes it's very elaborate and sometimes they, they will want to write back and they'll, they'll leave some questions for the tooth fairy. My, my oldest daughter was re was really involved with this when she was little. And so we had to, it, it got more and more elaborate over time. And to even where I was like getting texts from the tooth fairy from, uh, thanks to Skype <laughs> being able to text me from an anonymous number and, uh, you know, coming up with clever excuses when, uh, when we forgot uh, to do it overnight and, you know, the, the, the tooth fairy had to come a day late with, with some interest, perhaps. Um, so, you know, we, we definitely play this game with, with that mythical creature. So uh, I'll have to look into how, 
how Lewis does this with uh, Father Christmas. Or oh, the Tolkien, Tolkien here. Yeah. Yes. Now, Zach, I did not know that y'all are messing around with the Fae. <laughs> a little bit problematic. Now, see, I will allow Father Christmas because he's traditional and, and the Bishop of Myra and all of that. But uh, the Tooth Fairy is outright heathen. So maybe we need to have another episode about these uh, these these sidelong mythological characters who come along and take children's teeth. What are they doing with them? What mad science, what dark magic are they getting involved with uh, over there in fairyland? Well, let's just hope that Santa is kind of like an Aslan type role and is governing all these uh, mythological creatures. David, do you all grow up with Father Christmas or Santa Claus or anything like that? Do you have any strong opinions on this chapter? Definitely, we grew up with Father Christmas. He would ha- he would put uh, presents in our stockings, and when we got a little older, we'd have pillowcases because we were greedy children. Uh, <laughs> but my parents, my parents did a great job uh, in terms of building up the mythos. Because one, I remember one Christmas we came into the living room, which is where we had our fireplace, and there was glitter in the shape of uh, a pair of boots. So it was Ooh. the magical residue from Father Christmas going up our chimney. Wow. And since we lived in a relatively rural area, occasionally we would have deer tracks across our front lawn on Christmas morning, yet providing more evidence that, uh, that this man existed. So That's your parents, cool. like Tolkien, lied to you. And when yes. you grew up, you figured that Jesus was just as much a lie as Father Christmas, and you deconstructed the lot of them. Is that how it went? <laughs> No, my mother wasn't very good at hiding the presents, and I was a curious child. <laughs> so when I discovered some things that were later presented to me as being from Father Christmas, I reached important conclusions, but I knew that if I said anything, there was a danger that these presents would stop coming. So I played along with my parents for a while longer. I just want to point out for any uh, children uh, who listen to this podcast that some parents are in the habit of disbelieving in the existence of the jolly old elf from the North Pole, if you can imagine. Uh, and they will actually buy the presents for themselves and deny Father Christmas the chance to do what he ought to do magically. Uh, it's very sad what these people get into, but you know, some people are just not going to believe. But you, dear child, listening to this podcast, you believe. I know you do. So just keep on doing that. But even after you don't, do believe in Jesus Christ because the real-life St. Nicholas did, and he wouldn't like you uh, deconstructing the lot of them. Zach, we've talked about this a little bit before, but uh, you all don't do Santa necessarily, and we don't have small kids in the house, so we don't have a choice. I don't know, maybe we should do it anyway, but you guys just do presents from the parents, and then, oh, ha, ha, it's from Santa Claus? Yeah, we we haven't done uh, Santa with our kids. It's just, we just didn't want to carry that on. Um, yeah, perfectly not, free. Yeah. Not, nothing against, you know, my folks for doing that, because I, I had a lot of fun with Santa when I was a kid, but... We, uh, the way we do it is we, we start to wrap the gifts little by little throughout December, put them under the tree and just put a number on them. And then, uh, Naomi keeps a list of which number goes to which gift and which child. And so the whole month, it's sort of this anticipation and and this mystery of like, what's this going to be and who's it going to be for? Um, and then it just kind of builds a little bit, little by little. And then we, we take turns on Christmas. Uh, opening them and which sometimes could take a while, but sometimes we'll go in, you know, the lightning round and, and go a little bit faster. But uh, we really like that method because then it's, um, uh, we, we want our kids to be, we, we, we like to build that sense of anticipation, first of all, because that's what Advent is all about, right? It, it's about knowing that there is a savior coming um, and looking forward to that. And then secondly, we want to build gratitude. So we, we want our children to know, you know, who gave them which gift and, 
and we want them to celebrate with each other and not just be, you know, uh, just tearing into their own gifts, but really, uh, enjoying someone else opening a gift because we, we think that's important too. I love the idea of anticipation. As I flip through this book, I realized that Tolkien actually was able to build on to this little chore he had assigned to himself. I flipped to a letter on my page 60. It's labeled Near North Pole, December 2nd, 1933. So just four days before St. Nicholas Day. And he says, Dear people, very cold here at last. Business has really begun and we are working hard. I have had a good many letters from you. Thank you. I have made notes of what you want so far, but I expect I shall hear more from you yet. I am rather short of messengers, the goblins have, but I haven't time to tell you about our excitements now. I hope I shall find time to send a letter later. Give John my love when you see him. I send love to all of you and a kiss for Priscilla. Tell her my beard is quite nice and soft as I have never shaved. Three weeks to Christmas Eve, yours, Father Nicholas Christmas. So that's his first name, by the way. Headcanon accepted. And then there's a P.S. Cheer up, chaps. Also, chaplet, if that's the feminine. The fun's beginning. Yours, Polar Bear. So there's Polar Bear grabbing a quill pen in his paws. I would have to go back, and uh, David, maybe you have this in front of your memory, to try to figure out how much this was interfacing with Lewis's uh, older legendarium, or, or his legendary he was building up for Middle Earth, uh, the Silmarillion, you know, the mythology he was putting together for Britain. Uh, that would eventually lead to the Hobbit. Uh, you have, for example, the goblins. Now there are North Pole goblins, ice goblins, <laughs> presumably uh, dashing about. Um, I would love to have a crossover for these characters, but Tolkien <laughs> would not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is one of the wonderful things about this book. You get to see Tolkien having fun with his children, but at the same time, it's like a petri dish for his legendarium because uh he eventually father christmas eventually gets uh, uh, an elf as a secretary who's called ilbereth not uh-huh. elbereth but ilbereth i elbereth gilthoniel exactly the wife of manway which you which you see coming in in the silmarillion so you, you see him kicking around these ideas that do end up making their way into his other works now Stephen, you said that he did this for 23 years so obviously his his three children grew up and, and kind of grew out of childhood while he was still doing this. So was he writing these to their kids and his grandkids, or was he still just writing it to the three boys? I don't see that. I think it was just his three boys at first. Uh, actually, just a few then, letters. Okay. Yeah, just a few letters in. He's saying, I, I never hear from John anymore. I suppose he's getting a little older. John okay. may have caught on to the gag at that point. Uh, we're not exactly sure. But Christopher Tolkien is named here. Absolutely. Oh, okay. uh, Mike, Michael Tolkien as well. Christopher Tolkien, of course, was the late Christopher Tolkien now a few years ago, um, the, um, the head of the estate, he was the guy who was doing all of the editing of all of Tolkien's materials. So he was alive just until a few years ago. This is, it's incredible, you know? Yeah. Well, what I like about that is that he was doing it well past the point where they caught on and it was still kind of a fun game that he was doing with them, even though they were in on the joke. And I I think that's the best way to do these kind of things. Like I'm not, I'm not opposed to any of these kind of things, but I think it's, just better when the when the kids know what's going on and then it's sort of this mystery to be solved or this you know because uh, i i do little games like this with my kids where whenever we drive by whenever we go on a road trip and we see like an 18 wheeler with a big tarp over it i say oh that's where the government's hiding that ufo that just crashed <laughs> and uh, hidden in plain sight kids you know you got you got to keep your eyes open and so now whenever they see trucks like that they always point it out to me and, and we know we all know it's a joke but it's just really fun to to have that joke together. And so it sounds like that's kind of what he did where 
even as his kids were teenagers and adults, he was still kind of writing these letters to them just to kind of bring back that, that spirit of whimsy and, and fantasy. Well, I'm actually just thinking, I've realized something. What, did, what date did you say your last letter is? Because he also wrote to Priscilla. Well, Priscilla, and, oh. I actually have that letter in front of me. Yeah, no, the date of the last letter as I flip back is, I believe I said 1943. Yeah. So okay. the first one, 1920, 1943, 23 years. And this one here says, uh, Cliff House, North Pole, Christmas Eve, 1942. My dear Priscilla, Polar Bear tells me that he cannot find my letter from you among this year's piles. I hope he has not lost any. He is so untidy. Still, I expect you have been very busy this autumn at your new school. Now that just cuts me to the quick because you can fill in the details there. His children have gotten older. The magic is not that they're becoming adults and putting away the magic, but it is changing. They're changing. They're they're not the little kids at, uh, you know, his hearth every Christmas. They're going to be elsewhere. Um, And that's as it should be. But I love that he was still, as Zach said, he was still writing the letters. You know, was he by now just doing it for himself? I will look forward to asking Tolkien someday. Imagine there will be a huge line. I actually know Hammond and Skull, they say that Priscilla worked out that her dad was writing these when she was about oh, age 10. Okay. Oh, and, really? Okay. And so this is about four years later. So sorry, wow. who is Priscilla in this? Priscilla is his daughter. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. He had three sons and, and oh, least, okay. one daughter, Priscilla. Catholic, you know, they have a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's marvelous. Was- so, so four years ago, four years earlier, um, 1938-ish, she would have already figured this out. And yet he was still writing it as if, uh, wow. So Tolkien at this point is kind of doing this for his family, for himself. Yeah, like he had no tradition. plans to publish these. Did it's, he? it's a routine at this point. I mean, he's been mm-hmm. putting in so much effort. You know, he's been producing envelopes dusted with snow. He's been writing <laughs> polar postage stamps. Sometimes he's even managed to get the postman to deliver them. And oh, wow. when, when the, when the kids are writing back to father Christmas, uh, the, the, uh, the 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 envelopes disappear from the fireplace, you know, whisked whisked up to the north North Pole. Oh, yeah, wow. he was committed at this point. I mean, if you read any of uh, of Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion, you you know this guy could commit to a bit. Yeah, you know, he's he's seeing this through to the end. It, it <laughs> is a meme too that did not Lewis and Tolkien uh, dress up as polar bears for a holiday party, or is that a myth? It's confirmed that Tolkien did it. It is suspected that Lewis might have been along for the ride, but okay. I, I can't. I haven't. I've ne- haven't yet found any concrete proof that Lewis actually did it. But, but it was uh, two but, individual polar bear suits. It's not that Tolkien was the the front and then Lewis was the back <laughs> in the same suit. I hope not. I hope okay. not. But, and yeah, we're Tolkien not going to dress up as a, as a berserker and a polar bear. And yeah, this this was this was what what he really enjoyed. So <laughs> Tolkien could do his cosplay. Uh, what we would call it now. And of course, uh, Tolkien compared himself to Baron uh, and his beloved wife to Luthien. And those names are actually on their gravestones to this day. Mm-hmm. They're comparing themselves to fictional characters that he made up. And so while he was extremely uh, literary and scholarly and had all of these kids and was uh, an extremely learned man, uh, he was also a great big nerd which we absolutely love and uh, totally devoted to his family, uh, totally devoted to his faith. And that is something we could celebrate uh, along with his own celebration of Christmas, which we're going to move into in chapter three after a quick stop by our third sponsor. You, like Tolkien, may want to figure out how to write amazing stories. So even if you're not the scholar that he was, though, you can get a training course such as the I Write How to Write a Novel course. 
Are you looking for a fun yet challenging writing class for your teen or yourself? I Write How to Write a Novel is an online writing course that will teach you how to write novels that your friends and even strangers will want to read, how to overcome writer's block and gather ideas, and much more. A mentorship option is also available to go along with the course. I Write is taught by EJ Kitchens. She's a professional copy editor, former college lab instructor, and award-nominated author of the Star Clock Chronicles and Magic Collectors books. For more information and to enroll, visit ejkitchens.com slash courses. You can get all that information in our show notes for episode 191 as well. All right, Zach and David, uh, let's move to some applications here. Now, we haven't been able to help ourselves but uh, we have already applied uh, Lewis's like skepticism of some of the Christmas nonsense, the rush, the Christmas cards, uh, the overblown uh, corporatism, you know, going along with the tradition just because Walmart says to that kind of thing. Although I am grateful that uh, one positive benefit of the interwebs and all this uh, digital commerce is that people are not trampling one another uh, on their way to get the uh, vacuum cleaners on fake sales uh, when the doors open the Friday after Thanksgiving. So there's some issues that we've had for sure, but also, uh, so, so there's some hatred, but there's also some love for Christmas. And I'd just like to focus on some quick applications here that we've already started on. Uh, let's start with the positive though, uh, with Tolkien's committing to the bit and Christians have of course debated over how much to, uh, fantasize about these things for your children and say that this is true. And, and there's legitimate disagreement about that, but we could say that at least for Tolkien, it was a wonderful tradition uh, that he and his family enjoyed and something about their culture, about their neighbors, about just the time and place in which they were growing up uh, reinforced this kind of thing. Now, your setting faithful listener may vary, but still, I'm sure there's a sensibility here, that sense of wonder, of anticipation about Father Christmas arriving for Xmas as much as the Christ child arrived for Christmas. David, any thoughts, uh, and Zach, any thoughts? So David first, and how, how we can apply that to our own Advent or Christmas traditions. Yeah, I think focus on doing things that bring the family together that you actually enjoy. And you can do what Tolkien did, because when you read through the Father Christmas letters, you see that he's teaching his children the faith. He starts talking to them about St. Nicholas, St. Stephen, all saints. And he actually even... Uh, blends the this his version of Father Christmas um, because he actually gives him the same age as Jesus and thereby allowing him to talk about when all of this stuff began. And actually, one thing you don't see in the published versions of these letters, he is actually referring to him as Father Fr Christmas, as though he is a priest, mm. a friar. And, yes, of course. And so he's he's using using the, the this family tradition to instruct and catechize his children. And, you know, everything that we do around Christmas can be pointing towards that one thing, Jesus. So I, I mentioned that we didn't put up lights this year on our house, just kind of a one-off this year. We normally do that. But one thing I really like to do with my kids is drive around to certain neighborhoods in our city where uh, people have gone all out with the Christmas lights. And I mean, and there, there are some neighborhoods that are like tourist de destinations that every night there are lines of cars trying to get into these little cul-de-sacs to visit everything. And because it's like the entire street and neighbors often, you know, interconnect their lights or, or do these like crazy things where they have to put like parking cones to like keep you from hitting certain things that are in the street. 
Um, and you know, being in Austin and keep Austin weird, there are definitely some weird neighborhoods where it's just very artsy, you know, kind of things. It, it's not even necessarily Christmas. It's just really cool things people have done with, uh, decorations and lights, but that's, um, that's a fun family tradition is just to visit all of those places. Not that we make a big spiritual lesson, but just about Jesus being the light in the darkness. Um, and, and we talk about John one quite a bit. I'm one of those people that actually likes to go shopping on Christmas Eve, believe it or not. Um, not just because I've forgotten to shop until then, but I, I actually like being around all the crowds, uh, because I'm an extrovert. I like all the, just the energy of, of people, at the mall or, or wherever it is. Of course, now everyone shops online, so that's a little harder. And I, I like the white elephant exchange, even though that's usually kind of goofy and <laughs> sometimes can be a little awkward, but uh, I typically have fun with it. Um, uh, for years and years, we would have these uh, white elephant parties with the ministry I work for. And a lot of the things that we would bring would be supplied by my uh, my dearly beloved grandmother because she would give us all kinds of goofy gifts throughout the year. And probably the most, uh, the, the most infamous example of this is I had a talking Moses doll where you could pull the string and he would r- recite the 10 commandments one by one. And so the, <laughs> <laughs> this wow. was, a, it was just so on brand for this, you know, ministry party. And then, uh, another thing that we do, uh, also connect with my ministry is the, uh, the international students that are involved with us. They will, uh, our our ministry staff take them around caroling. And so this is a really fun thing because for many of them, they don't know the Lord yet. And so now they're getting to sing these songs that are about the birth of Christ and celebrating you know, his arrival onto our planet and the meaning of that and, and bringing other people joy as they, they sing these. And so uh, Stephen, you've told me that you're going to go see the Nutcracker. I've, I've also seen that uh, multiple years in a row. Uh, we we saw Handel's Messiah one year around Christmas time, and so th- those are great things to do this season. And I'll, I'll tell you what it was particularly about uh, seeing uh, Handel's Messiah in particular was the the discipline of sitting still <laughs> and wow, and not having a true. lot of stimulation, you know, and and not checking your phone and not having you know like like a movie like where it's just flashing scene after scene after scene. But just having sort of the static image you're looking at of an orchestra, and they're not really moving. It's not like a visual performance like the Nutcracker. Even it, it's just a very meditative almost performance. Uh, but that was incredible seeing that one year. I'd, I'd really like to do that again. So I, I think those are all great traditions to do. I think I may have been caroling once. Now that you mention it, I really miss it. The problem is Zach, though. Speaking of time and place, as I said earlier. Caroling for me is always in the snow. Even the carols say so, so it must be true. (laughs) But not only have we no chance of that happening um, in the Christmas season here, or Advent season, as it were, uh, in Central Texas, where Zach and I are located, uh, David probably has a better chance of that. Uh, But also, it's not going to be even cold enough. There's no chance I'm going out there in a a, a woolen cap and a scarf and even anything like a long coat. I'll be like 74 today. <laughs> yeah, 74 today. Thanks for reminding me. It's supposed to get colder on Sunday, but yeah, it, it some of these things are challenges to the traditional Christmas images, but I still think we can translate them to the time and place in which we are. Uh, whether or not you do the indoor tree, whether or not you do Father Christmas carols, whether or not you call it uh, Christmas or Advent or whatever, 
Uh, the season can be wonderful with that sense of joy that not only did Tolkien uh, teach us about here, uh, showing as well as telling, but that Lewis also was pursuing. Uh, this episode does not mean to pit Lewis versus Tolkien, uh, as if Lewis is the negative guy and Tolkien's a positive guy. Um, I think Tolkien was rejecting the silliness uh, as much as Lewis was. Uh, he was just he just has uh, the advantage of having had a huge family uh, to write Father Christmas letters for. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's actually a really funny story that Lewis recounts in one of his letters. Um, his brother was sitting on a bus and they were they were driving past a church and they had a nativity set out front. And he heard a lady on the bus say, they bring religion into everything. Look, they're even dragging it into Christmas now. Oh, wow. Christmas. Christmas. I'm, I'm thinking the bumper sticker again. Put the Christ back into Christmas. It's not like he ever left. That is hilarious. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Nope. It is about the faith. Uh, it is absolutely about that all the time. And so is the uh, Pints with Jack podcast as we draw to a close. Um, David, I really enjoyed the C.S. Lewis reading day, and I'm looking forward to the next one. But you all have all kinds of other stuff planned uh, going forward into this uh, 2024 season. Why don't you all tell us uh, what you have going on over there and uh, give us some links as we draw to a close. Oh, thanks. Yeah, everything is at pintsforjack.com. And last season, we began the Ransom Trilogy. So Lewis's science fiction, that was Out of the Silent Planet. And the season we've just started is a little bit of a palate cleanser for people that don't like sci-fi. And so we're actually going through Lewis's letters. Letters to an American lady, letters to children, and his Latin letters, which were written in Latin to uh, Don Giovanni Calabria in Italy. And so that's what we're going to be doing this season. We've got a load of giveaways that we're doing for our Patreon supporters, like these very delightful wooden coasters with our logo oh, burnt onto them. Awesome. So that's what we're doing this season, and we'll have Patreon events, and I've uh, we've actually just brought one, one book out of, uh, uh, back into print. This was produced by Azusa Pacific University, and it was uh, produced by their honors students on the letters of C.S. Lewis. So I was fortunate enough to get a copy of it, and I thought this was so good that I wanted to send it out to our patron supporters. So we contacted the university. They're reprinting it, and so that's what everyone's getting in their stocking this Christmas. Fantastic. So whether or not it's from Father Christmas or from you by name, either way, you are carrying forward the spirit of giving. Uh, one thing you all do on the Pints of Jack podcast, uh, the pints are literal. Y'all will go through and say what you're drinking and uh, no stumbling intended here. But, you know, <laughs> Jack, he likes to imbibe. Tolkien liked to imbibe, you know, and, and you guys do a little imbibing. Now, I've just got some coffee this morning. So that's my uh, beverage. And I literally about to finish it right now. Uh, in the spirit of the thing. Uh, Zach, what do you have? Yeah, just some uh, co uh, coffee from Costco. Okay, that is extremely scholarly and uh, <laughs> beneficial for the soul. Uh, David, do you have a classier beverage? Only, only marginally. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm drinking from a uh, Pints of Jack beer stein, and I'm drinking Best Day Brewing Kolsch-style non-alcoholic beer because it's still quite early here. The Synthahol. Okay. It's Synthahol from the Star Trek universe. Exactly. That's true. Yeah, that sounds, um, well, for those of you who don't like science fiction, too bad. Anyway, I want to raise an empty mug uh, to Pints with Jack into the future success of the C.S. Lewis Reading Day. May it uh, bring us closer to Christ and to the awesomeness that is C.S. Lewis. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, indeed. All right, David, thank you so much for stopping by. A most happiest of Advent to you and yours, and when it's time to say so, on the 25th, a very Merry Christmas. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Cheers.
characters. Well, that was brilliant having David on from the Pints with Jack podcast. David, thanks so much for joining us. That was a really fun discussion about Lewis and Tolkien. And now we're going to go into our comm station questions, which for you, our faithful listener, we would love to know, do you feel humbug about mandatory Christmas fun? Or do you feel joyous about Christmas traditions, even the silly ones? So please send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or comment on this episode page, our social media channels, or if you are in our Discord server as a hero of the guild, you can always leave us a note there. And speaking of, we've got a couple notes from uh, two of our heroes. The first one is Abigail, who asked for photo evidence of the Arthur Christmas sweater that Stephen mentioned in our last episode, 190. And Abigail said, quote, I personally like both sugar and spice with my stories, but really my favorites are stories that are rich and complex, savory and nourishing. It's a Wonderful Life is actually a good example. It's incredibly dark in places, and I know many people, myself included sometimes, who can't watch it because of the intensity and depression that it contains, but it confronts the darkness and comes through to a place of light and hope. The best Christmas stories do that, I find. They're about choosing to live when all seems lost and finding undeserved redemption about light during the darkest times. And yes, about festivity and jollification, not just because it's tradition, but because we have something real to celebrate. Well, that is uh, wonderfully said, Abigail. Thanks so much for that comment. I love It's a Wonderful Life, but this reminds me I've not seen it in years. I am probably able to appreciate that even more now. Uh, even now I can think of so many iconic moments. And by the way, it's a wonderful life is a fantastical story. It is in fact, an, uh, there's a parallel timeline effect. They wouldn't call it that there. And the origin is not some science experiment or super ability, but some divine gift for George Bailey played by Jimmy Stewart to behold a world that uh, runs along as if he was never born. He got his wish. Uh, absolutely incredible storytelling there. Iconic. Um, I can't wait to go back and look at that one. And yeah, there's some spicy moments in there. You know, there's some uh, goofy stuff. There's even some flirtation that gets a little uh, suggestive uh, in 1940s style uh, between uh, George and the future Mary Bailey. But it's so earnest uh, and so wonderful. And I think uh, some bad angel teaching aside, uh, totally biblical and celebrating life. Uh, on a similarly serious note, uh, Hero of the Guild Jack of Shadows mentioned about episode 190. He said, I'm not going to fight about Doug Wilson in here, but I would like to say that the criticism against him is not simply him saying the word wuss discussed at 2835 in this episode. So y'all get a timestamp there. Thanks for that, Jack. And he says he's written some pretty terrible stuff that would violate this group's code of conduct, but more importantly, violates the Bible's code of conduct. Now, that last uh, that last point there is a serious one, and I've not read everything that this Christian leader has written. Uh, so far all I know, this is a legitimate charge. I think there are some spicy hot takes from Christians or otherwise that I am not sinning by reading. Uh, and that person would need to answer to God then for every careless word they've spoken. That is a biblical concept. The tongue uh, can get out of control. And even if you're on the right side in a cultural or political struggle, or even if you're fighting heretics and defending orthodoxy, uh, we are still commanded uh, to keep a tight leash on the tongue because otherwise it turns into a rudderless ship or a forest ablaze uh, with no fire breaks on uh, the damage that it can cause. That's, uh, that's the Apostle James who warned against that. 
So that's a legitimate charge. And I think that's something we ought to take very seriously. I just know that as a reader, Zach, I can read that stuff and uh, read it carefully uh, without sinning any more than usual. I've seen plenty of hot takes, uh, some spicy storytelling, you know, some you know, more satirical, uh, hard-edged stuff uh, that I've not sinned any more than usual by enjoying. I just view the, uh, the edgy stuff as a bug, not a feature. Yeah. Well, as a traditional Southerner, I try my best not to use profanity because that's uh, kind of more verboten in the South and in other parts of the country. So I definitely take it seriously to, uh, like you said, to keep a, keep a leash on the tongue, Stephen. Uh, not that I was always this way, by the way. Before I was a Christian, I was, I was much looser with the, uh, the curse words, as it were. And I have to confess, I don't really pay that much attention to Doug Wilson. Um, to be quite honest, I feel a very similar thing with him that I feel with uh, other provocateurs, uh, whether it's certain online personalities, Donald Trump, pick your other politician you don't like. Uh, it it does seem like Wilson, uh, like a lot of these other people, wants to provoke people, and so I I feel like the the only winning move is not to play. Uh, so for the most part, I just ignore him. Uh, sometimes I find his blogs helpful. Other times I feel like he's trying to be too clever and too uh, creative with how he's explaining something, and I don't really know what he's talking about. Uh, so for that reason, I also don't pay as much of attention but i will take your word for it jack that he's uh jack of the shadows that he you know uses some uh some language that maybe is unbecoming and like you said would violate our own code of conduct so yeah we would have to uh have a timeout with him if he was in the Lorehaven uh guild but uh you know that this brings up just a, a tough topic Stephen, which is how sometimes uh, people use strong language because they feel very strongly about something and they don't know a better way to express that, you know, uh, anger or disgust or outrage. It's something truly outrageous in our culture. And it's not to excuse an outrageous response, but it does make you wonder sometimes why people respond in this way and, and, and provoke certain responses. You know, what what is it that's going on in our culture that um, it is leading to people taking these sort of more, I guess, extreme or desperate you know, measures in terms of their rhetoric? Because a lot of times you can see, I guess, more respectable speech defending disrespectable things or unrespectable things. And, and that's concerning too. And so, I don't know, this could probably be a whole other podcast episode, but it does point us to something that's worthy of consideration. Again, being a, being a Texan, I try to talk in a certain way and I write in a certain way. I try not to even like comments like on social media that have profanity because I just don't want to approve that in and of myself. I, I don't want to give my approval. I'm, I'm not a saint by any means y'all, but I, de I definitely take that seriously. So this is a tough topic, but I appreciate the discussion about it. It, it definitely presents a challenge to all of us of how do we speak boldly? How do we, you know, fight monsters without becoming monsters ourselves? Uh, because there's, there's very much a war in our culture. There's always a spiritual war happening. And uh, particularly, you know, we always think about when it comes to Christmas, we think of it's the, uh, you know, it's the happy holidays thing that's being fought against us. It's, it's the Starbucks cups that how dare they not put Jesus on the Starbucks cups? 
But there are so many different dimensions to the spiritual war in this season alone that we've talked about in this episode, mostly about how the whole culture is trying to influence our worship and redirect our worship to other things. Well, Lewis, I think, gives a great example of how to be a satirist and how to be a rhetorician uh, without uh, becoming uh, a mud monster. Even the essay uh, that David read for us earlier, uh, Lewis is engaging in scathing rhetoric about Xmas, but he's not picking on people so much as just a a mood, you know, a, a series of memes uh, that have taken over uh, this uh, fake island nation of Neoturb. And of course, he's just talking about Britain. He's just talking about his old, but he's using this kind of uh, stylistic method. He's swashbuckling, just like he does at the start of uh, um, the abolition of man nonfiction, where he's engaging a real life English textbook, but he gives the authors a goofy nickname. He pokes fun at them. And then he gives all of these academic jibes. Uh, he basically says in very fine language, these guys have no idea what they're talking about. If they did, they might change, but it's to their credit that they're ignorant. Uh, Lewis doesn't say that outright. He couches it. Uh, he makes you dig for it. And then once you find uh, that sharp point underneath the uh, soft cushioning of the words, you go, whoa. And suddenly the rebuke is even more devastating because he has said it not with any malice, but with challenge. He's swashbuckling. Mm -hmm. He's not striking below the belt. He's trying to be chivalrous uh, in the satire. And I think that's the best way for Christians to do. A lot of people think Douglas Wilson does that. A lot of people think that other uh, rhetoricians and pundits do that uh, to the extent that they do. I support them, but it's a dangerous profession and you can go too far, yeah. not only in the nonfiction, uh, but in fiction that is tinged with this kind of satire. Well, and, and I think there is a, a tactical consideration here that's, that's wise to consider, which is when you're in battle, do not hand ammunition to your enemy, <laughs> right? Correct. So just whatever it is you're arguing for or however you're arguing, don't do it in a way that's just going to give you a disadvantage in, in the debate or in the cultural battle. And so I, I think that's something everyone sh should consider. Right. And just like with holiday traditions, there are times and places that will change everything. Uh, some settings, sometimes it's just not appropriate to be engaging in that kind of satire. It's better to avoid that kind of flippancy because you don't want to become a flippant person uh, and uh, make room for being earnest, uh, which is what we hope to do at Lorehaven, along with uh, talking about humor uh, from a distance. And probably our last episode is not the last time that we've engaged that. Our mission update, though, uh, we are drawing to the close of our 2023 season on the Fantastical Truth podcast, which is but one part of what we do at Lorehaven. We just had a review at lorehaven.com for the wintry fantasy, A Soul as Cold as Frost. We're actually engaging uh, in a new book quest for that as well. There's probably still time to join if you can get that uh, key code for the Lorehaven Guild, our castle in the cloud. Just subscribe free at lorehaven.com and we will mail that over to you. Uh, even if you missed that book quest, though, uh, stick around, get to know our pushing 300 heroes in that community, and you can join our next book quest in January for C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I've been putting those questions together. I'm into chapter five now. It's loads of fun, wonderful story, so many great themes. Uh, you'll be glad you joined. Uh, we also had a recent review of H.L. Uh, Burke's uh, A Superhero for Christmas, which is like, what if the Hallmark Channel met the MCU? We've been holding on to that review for a while, uh, saving it for just a time as this. So go to lorehaven.com. You can find that. We try to post new reviews every Friday, and you can also subscribe free to get those updates. 
and join the Lorehaven Guild and get notifications for any of our content that you like best. Naomi loves that book, by the way, Superhero for Christmas. Superhero so for Christmas. Yeah, absolute shout out. It's just the kind of uh, cozy adventure type read that you would need this holiday season. Next on Fantastical Truth. Goodness gracious, Zach, this is our very last episode of our third year of podcast operations. And for that, I'm very grateful. But there's another anniversary that we are paying attention to. 20 years ago, the world was watching one fantasy film trilogy to rule them all. More Tolkien for you folks. And the final installment of this series, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, arrived in American theaters on December 17th, 2003, 20 years ago. From the beacon's lighting of Minas Tirith to Frodo's and Sam's desperate fights against Shelob to the ear-tingling charge of the Brohirim onto the fields of Pelennor, how did we first experience this grand finale to the Lord of the Rings film series? I'm so grateful for those films, but even more so, I'm grateful for the men who helped inspire them. Uh, Not just C.S. Lewis, who had so many wonderful things to say and some challenges for his culture, but Tolkien, who made these myths, not just for himself and his own enjoyment, not just for his children, but also for the entire world. I want to celebrate them. Lewis and Tolkien, to me, all of their stories are Christmas stories. Hopefully you'll get to enjoy those with your friends and family as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.